When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual via Google Hangout now by my friend and co-host and THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. Dan, what's shaking? Apparently, neither one of us know what day of the week it is, but, you know, that's that's just how these things go these days. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, it's been a really busy week of news, Um, you know, all things considered in our landscape. uh, It feels particularly big. I mean, I don't want to say things are getting back to normal, but I feel like people are sort of positioning themselves for the moment at which things get back to normal. Maybe. I don't know. It's it's all boundless optimism. So let's feed into the boundless optimism, Leslie. (laughs) Yes. And with all that, let's dive right into this week's headlines. Leading off, Chris Pratt is officially returning to TV and will star in and exec produce a conspiracy thriller called The Terminalist, which has landed at Amazon with a straight to series order following a multiple outlet bidding war. It certainly feels like a companion piece to Jack Ryan all over the place. So I guess I understand. Um, Speaking of streaming services, Gene Smart will star in an untitled dark comedy from The Good Place boss Mike Schur and the trio behind Comedy Central's Broad City that has been ordered to series at streamer HBO Max. Meanwhile, over at premium cable network HBO, Insecure has, of course, been renewed for a fifth season. Over in File This Under, holy crap news, Nicolas Cage will star as Tiger King's Joe Exotic in a new scripted series from the showrunner behind Netflix's American Vandal. This is the second scripted show that is in development about the Tiger King subject in the works, joining another one in development at UCP with Kate McKinnon attached to play Carol Baskin. For the love of Pete, folks, watch other shows. Move on. Tiger King had its moment. Just move on. Whenever these shows are filmed and whenever that is and whenever they actually land at a network and and come out, are people still going to care about Tiger King? I don't know. I don't. I mean, people will care about a streaming service show starring Nicolas Cage as a crazy eccentric. Sure. So I guess. But in terms of actually caring about Joe Exotic and Tiger King, we, we just need to. To move on. Yeah, um, I, although I would watch a show with both of them, with Nicolas Cage and Kate McKinnon opposite each other. Sure, absolutely. Like yeah. I would absolutely watch that. Um, over in Netflix news, the streamer has inked an overall deal with Ricky Gervais and renewed one of your favorite shows, Afterlife, for a third yeah. season. It is one of my favorite shows, and I'm sadly behind on season two, but I'm going to be catching up probably this weekend. 
In other streaming news, scripted space drama series The Right Stuff, starring Patrick J. Adams, will move from National Geographic to Disney Plus and help fill the streamer's originals pipeline. I am very much looking forward to this one. Um, over at Fox, the network has renewed The Masked Singer, duh, duh. and Lego Masters eh, for next season, whenever that may be. Dan, that is a cute show. And it's, you know, it's, it's a little it's uplifting programming and it's probably oh. really cheap to make. I'm I have no doubt. I just I haven't had the chance to watch Lego Masters because yeah. I don't know. There's just other stuff. And I'm not particularly shocked by the mask singer. Yeah. And as a as a brickhead myself and married to an even bigger brickhead, um, I'm, I'm excited for more Lego Masters um, in coronavirus related news. Freeform has picked up the four part scripted limited comedy series Love in the Time of Corona. I'm not making this up, which will be produced remotely and debut on the network in August. Elsewhere, HBO Max has picked up a culinary show featuring Selena Gomez learning to cook while in quarantine. Over at Fox, they've ordered an unscripted series called Celebrity Watch Party, which is exactly what it sounds like. And in COVID-related fallout, Dan, I'm sorry to report that the summer session of the Television Critics Association's press tour has officially been canceled. I know it was a difficult decision for Sarah Rodman and the TCA board, and I am glad I didn't have to make it. But let's be honest, we all kind of knew this was coming. Worst case scenario, no one was going to be able to actually pack into a hotel ballroom in late July. And best case scenario, let's say we're pretending that we're back to normal by late July. No one was going to be able to pause production to do TCAs in late July. So this right. was just and an unfortunate inevitability, I fear. Yeah. And I mean, we'll, we'll miss all of the, the great podcast content that we would um, have normally gotten during TCA. And hopefully we'll, there'll be other things that, that uh, will make for good, uh, good topics uh, this summer. And the nominees are in for the prestigious Peabody Awards, featuring our colleague Kim Masters among the nominating committee. Uh, nominees in the television category include such, I would say, variable no-brainers as Chernobyl, David Makes Man, Fleabag, Rami, Stranger Things, Succession, Unbelievable, Watchmen, and When They See Us, among many, many others. It's a pretty representative group, though I really don't understand what Stranger Things is doing there at this point. Yeah, I didn't really get that one, but I'm pleased to see so many former TV's top five showrunner spotlight guests among that mix. So Absolutely. We, we like to talk to smart people, and smart people make good TV and etc. Yeah. Well, wrapping up the headlines this week, I told you it was a busy week. History has canceled two scripted dramas, Project Blue Book and Nightfall, after two seasons apiece. With Vikings already ending and its spinoff moving to Netflix, the cable network currently has no scripted series on its schedule at this moment. And that's just the way of the world. Yeah. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off this week, as the industry-wide production shutdown enters its third month, many TV writers have been mulling whether or not to write COVID-19 and the global pandemic into their scripted programs. Joining us to discuss Hollywood's current creative debate is THR's executive TV editor, Lacey Rose. So th thank you for joining us, Lacey. Thanks for having me. 
So, you know, we reported out this this story about how or if scripted TV shows are going to actually write in our current landscape amid COVID into the scripted dramas like, you know, like FBI or Dick or a lot of the Dick Wolf and the shows about first responders. What's at the center of debate? I mean, we both talked to a lot of showrunners about this. Yeah. And I don't think it is limited to dramas. I, I think this is sort of across the, the landscape. If you have a show that is grounded in reality, um, so not a superhero show, not a period piece. It's the question that you are asking yourself. It's the question that you're sort of uh, having, you know, asking in your writer's room right now, albeit a virtual one. Um, how do you write this in? Do you write this in? If you are going to write this in, at what point in the pandemic are you going to sort of explore? So are you going to explore it in, in the past tense? Are you going to look at it, um, you know, start pre-pandemic and, and have it sort of fall later in, in a season? Uh, these are all the questions that people are asking. Now, you guys have both talked to a lot of showrunners about this. Let's let's sort of talk about sort of more specifics. Who seems kind of excited about this as a possibility of things that they have to write about and who is just like, yeah, we haven't thought about it. Well, I mean, I, I think it really depends on what your timeline for your show actually is. I and mean, if, if you have a broadcast show and you're potentially looking at coming on, you know, at some point later this year, you sort of have to be thinking about it, it now. Uh, if you are a, a cable show or, or streaming show and, and the timeline is, is a lot looser, you don't necessarily have to be thinking about it in the same way. Uh, so starting there. But to, to answer your question, I don't know that anyone's necessarily excited about it, but I think that there are certainly showrunners. You know, J.J. Philbin, who is working on single parents, is, is someone who sees it as a potentially sort of rich area to mine. She is sitting there. Uh, she's a parent herself. She's talked to other parents. Everyone has sort of horror stories about how to raise your kids in the middle of all of this. Some of these stories are, are uh, you know, th there are humor in them, <laughs> even if it's painful humor if you're in the middle of it. And so I think she sees uh, potentially sort of creatively rich areas to explore. I think, you know, Curb Your Enthusiasm guys, they don't even know if it will come back, but if it does, that's one where you can see uh, different sort of storylines. I mean, uh, Larry David has been social distancing his whole life, but there are certainly, you know, storylines to explore there. One of my favorite interviews is always John Wells because he's, you know, first of all, he's just a, a legend in this town, but, you know, he is a showrunner on Shameless. And he mentioned in our interview that, you know, this is a show about, you know, residents of Chicago's South Side. So you're looking at economic challenges and a family, you know, he said that multiple members of the Gallagher family would have had and recovered from COVID. The show, you know, he's rewriting scripts from the final season of Shameless to write in the economic impact for for some of these, the, you know, the working class community. So that made me think of the alibi, which is the main bar setting, uh, you know, that is owned by the, you know, the Gallagher's neighbors. Like, is that still standing? So these are all the things that he's he's starting to add into scripts. And, you know, the thing that that stands out for me is, you know, I interviewed the team from All Rise about their big virtual episode and asked them this question, too. And, you know, they all said the same thing, too, that where it's this is, these are fresh stories that haven't been mined yet, whether it's for drama or for comedy. Dan Gore for Brooklyn Nine-Nine said the same thing. They're a show that's set in New York, albeit a comedy, but they're looking at ways like how does this influence, how does this impact first responders when we've seen that a number of first responders in New York have, have been hit hard by COVID? All first responders have been hit by, hard by COVID, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
But by the way, there's, then there's the other side. There's, there's people who want to run as far away from this as possible and, and live in an alternate universe. I mean, there is definitely a feeling among many, uh, which is I, I'm living through it. I don't need to rehash it on screen. Now, when you guys talk to people like this, we've started to see the slow trickle of the actual quarantine shows people are being made. Freeform announced one today. There was the Genji Cohen thing last week. Are people discussing... And in terms of that, you know, if I have to talk about it, I'd rather do it in a separate show. I've got this idea for this. But when I do my show, I'd rather just go back to doing my show. Yeah, I, I think that to the extent that they can, right? I mean, I, I think you run into issues. I mean, I take something like Grownish. You know, you could try and do your, your typical show, you know, you, the same old show, but say this was to come back and kids aren't, you know, in college. Do you appear utterly tone deaf if you were trying to sort of tell the, the same old show? And I think that's where these people are sort of running into issues, where they don't want to sort of write themselves into irrelevance. See. Yeah. And I haven't heard a whole lot about development of these, you know, the scripted COVID themed shows. I think a lot of this, you know, like the, the freeform thing is a four part limited series that they're going to do remotely um, and air in August. I think that's probably, you know, a network that says, look, we've had some originals that have been delayed. Possibly this is one thing that we can do to help fill the void while speaking to our audience and staying on brand. Um, the Genji Cohen thing is an individual episodic anthology. I'm, you know, we've heard it's a, it's a passion project of hers. I don't know. I don't know. You know, I think I, I go back to thinking about Matt Hubbard's great tweet from a couple of weeks ago that it was when this is over, no one's going to want to see the dating show about people finding love via Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that is very real. Um, and I think, again, it sort of depends on where you drop in uh, to this pandemic. And I think what you'll see from a lot of shows is they will try and tell these stories that are, are set in, in, in our future, um, where they're looking back at at COVID. But at the same time, they are living in with the aftermath of it. I mean, Leslie mentioned the, the economic fallout. I think that's something that you do have to show if you have a show that is trying to reflect our world. And, and that is going to be our world. That is already our world. I've heard, you know, Wells even said that there, there would probably be rewrites on some of these scripts up until the moment where they're filming it based on what the state of the world is like when they're actually ready and up to filming those scenes. Because who knows, like we said, how many times have we said it in this show already? How we, we, there's more questions than answers and no one really knows when that's going to be. Yeah, those late. I mean, a, a lot of people sort of mentioned that that idea that there yeah. once production does resume, there will be a lot of late nights in writers rooms as people are looking back on the scripts they wrote weeks, months ago and, and all of a sudden realizing, well, this doesn't fit with the world now. <sighs> too much uncertainty is all I'm saying is, is too much uncertainty. And who knows when anybody is going to want to be reflective on this particular moment in our history. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think you don't know what audiences want. You, you don't know if, if they are tuning in for a, a, you know, a reprieve and, and they really don't want to see this. At the same time, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I watch uh, shows now and I, I see people sort of hugging or, or shaking hands and I have an immediate sort of reaction. Uh, I, I recoil yeah. almost. And, and I think that's something that is, I mean, I, I can't be alone in that feeling. And I think it's something that will be addressed as, as these people are writing these shows going forward. Yeah, I mean, as and we, you know, my wife and I just finished watching Upload from Greg Daniels on Amazon this week. And 
you know, as we watched this show, it's like, oh, there's no crowd scenes here. You know, it's very small number of casts and there's no, not a lot of sex scenes. Like there's very, you know, it, there's not a lot of personal, like physical contact. I'm like, that's a show that could get by with a second season. Should that come in with social distancing, right? Filming while practicing social distancing. But I think about it. That's what I think about now too. In addition to, you know, recoiling when you see big crowd scenes or, you know, th these close up scenes and stuff like that. That's, those are the things that are going through my mind as I watch, you know, you know, the, the pre-quarantine, the pre-COVID programming. So. Yeah, I think we're definitely going to see a lot of shows where people are not shaking hands or hugging. I think that will be the primary, the primary move that people are going to be prepared to make is no more handshakes and hugs. Handshakes are overrated. I'm, I'm OK with that. What, yeah. what are you said from someone who does not love doing hugs either, Lacey? <laughs> also not a huge fan of hugs. <laughs> well, Lacey, thank you so much for joining us. It was great to see you. Thanks for having me. Number two. Up second, this is the week that would typically be dubbed Hell Week by TV reporters and other folks in our business. It is the week before upfronts when broadcast dramas and comedies get renewed or canceled and new series orders are handled out, usually in fingernail biting, nerve wracking piecemeal fashion in which our intrepid co-host Leslie Goldberg would have 8,000 different phone calls into 9,000 different people and would be afraid to go and, I don't know, eat food, wash her hair, anything like that. Instead, that's not what's actually happening. Instead, we had a press release from CBS yesterday. So, First of all, Leslie, fill us in on what CBS announced yesterday and where that leaves us as we head towards not so hell week. Yeah, this is the opposite of Hell Week. I mean, while it's been busy with a lot of TV news, usually Thursday and Friday this week um, are the ones where they're my busiest days of the year. And well, that's simply not the case this year because upfronts are not happening the way that they traditionally would, given our current landscape. With all that said, CBS, as you said, did get the ball rolling on whatever the 2021 broadcast schedule is going to look like. There was a massive announcement that determined the fate of all of its current scripted originals. The network renewed 15 dramas and comedies and canceled four others. Basically, the CBS that you know and love is going to be back next year as is, except for Man with a Plan, which was canceled after, I think, five seasons. So Matt LeBlanc is free to focus on whenever the Friends reunion will take place. And then Rookies, Tommy, Carol's second act, and Broke, all of which were front runners this time a year ago, were all canceled. Um, those also join a scrap heap that includes the f final seasons of Criminal Minds, Elementary, God Friended Me, Hawaii Five-0, and Madam Secretary. Other than that, business as usual. Three NCIS shows, two FBI shows, Bull, Blue Bloods. Like I said, the CBS you know and love will be back next year. Now, the first thing I have to clarify there is that it was the fourth season of Man with a Plan that just aired, but fourth I could season? not. It was no. only the it was only the fourth season. Uh, I, I went to check this out because there was no way I was actually going to know what season of Man with a yeah, Plan it actually was, because how on earth would anybody know that? But yes, four seasons yeah, of right. Man with a Plan. Four seasons. <laughs> I, it, 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 it felt longer. Well, it is it is one of those strange shows where when it premiered, it premiered with a fair amount of Matt LeBlanc related hype. And then it kind of just became this plug and play midseason type thing for CBS that I, I never in a million years could have told you 
at any given point whether Man with a Plan was actually on TV or not. And it, so, it kind of became the yeah. new rules of engagement where it just w was used as a schedule filler. And so I guess it will be missed as that. I, I don't know. But yeah, no, these, these are not hugely shocking pieces of news. I, no. I don't feel like. Well, yeah. The one piece that was surprising was that they did this all at once, Dan. I mean, <laughs> you, a lot of this stuff, you know, look, CBS does make one giant renewal announcement every year. It's usually not the week before upfronts. It usually happens before that, usually in March. Um, and then they have, you know, the bubble shows that that whose fates are determined usually through the weekend before upfronts all the way down to the wires are kind of looking at pilots and reviewing what works where and what their scheduling needs are. But look, all that's out the window this year. No one has any idea what the schedule is going to look like because it's unclear when anyone's going to be able to go back into production, as we've said. So, yeah, I mean, you know, some sources are saying that this, you know, that the decision to do this big mass renewal was a little naive because it's unclear when production can resume. So how much of this stuff will actually make it to air? I mean, these are all massive variables um, that we're dealing with right now. So, you know, you know, el elsewhere, you know, we've got a lot of the CW has basically renewed everything save for the final seasons of the 100 and Arrow and Supernatural. It's still waiting to make a decision on the on River on Riverdale offshoot Katie Keene. ABC also has yet to make the bulk of its programming decisions. Those, I think, will be handed out later this month after what would have been next week's upfronts. Um, they're planning on doing some intimate meetings with advertisers, not in any kind of traditional upfront or digital presentation. So that means no Jimmy Kimmel roast, which we all look forward to every year. It's probably the best part of upfronts week in terms of entertainment value. Um, but the network schedule They've renewed The Good Doctor, Grey's Anatomy, and Station 19. And The Connors, The Goldbergs, and Blackish are all expected to return, as is The Rookie. Comedies, I'm told, will depend on if the network will want to keep a second night of, of comedy on its schedule. I mean, these are all big variables that, you know, that, that it's hard to talk about with any sort of seriousness because there's, like we keep saying, there are more questions than answers about what, what next season will look like and when it will even start. Over at Fox, the network has its entire animated slate, Bob's Burgers, The Simpsons, Family Guy and Rookies, Duncanville and Bless the Hearts, all coming back. Plus, 911 and its spinoff Lone Star have all been picked up. Freshman dramas, Filthy Rich and Next, which were poised to bridge the mid-season and summer seasons are being held for whatever next season will be as they're the rare full seasons of scripted programming that have been completed and also probably the rare scripted seasons that have been completed of shows that are probably not very good based on everything that we're hearing chatter about from internally uh, from sources I should note sources outside the network because of course no no one inside the network is going to say that their shows are bad wrapping things up NBC has already done the bulk of its heavy lifting They've handed out early renewals to all four of its Dick Wolf shows, plus one of my favorites, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Blacklist, New Amsterdam, Superstore, and of course, This Is Us. No decisions yet on its current freshman crop of all, which is crazy because a lot of those shows, like you would think that they would give early renewals to some of them. But uh, personally, we're, I'm rooting for Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. But look no, for no, those decisions I'm to come in the next couple of weeks, too. I am right there with you. Also rooting very hard for Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, which to me was was probably the best well, I would say it was definitely the best new broadcast show of the midseason. Uh, yeah, I thought that was, by the end, a fairly special show by broadcast standards. So I would hope that I would hope that NBC will find a way to renew it. I would also hope that NBC would find a way to get uh, some amount of push for Jane Levy in the upcoming Emmy race, because I feel like she was entirely worthy of being in those conversations. Uh 
Yeah, boy, look, looking at some of those things, Filthy Rich and Next were both paneled at Press Tour back in January, and January was a thousand years ago. I saw those two names, and I've watched the pilots for both shows. I completely and totally blanked on on what either one of those two shows was. And, uh, you know, that is both reflective of the quality of those two shows, but it is also reflective of just how long ago absolutely everything seems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a crazy time, to be clear. So we'll ha look for more clarity on what's going on at the broadcast networks, including new series orders, which, again, will be based off of probably the pilot script, maybe some early footage, and, and more than likely the second scripts that most of these networks have commissioned in, in the past couple of months amid the, the stay-at-home lockdown. So who knows? I have a question for you as we yeah. look ahead to next week's podcast. And this is a conversation that we could both have in general offline, but also on the podcast. What is actually happening next week? I know that NBC is doing a presentation of some sort on Monday regarding what the business is. But what else is actually happening next week? You know, NBC is foregoing its traditional upfront pre presentation, but on May 11th, the day of what would have been its presentation, they're going to stream an hour long state of the marketplace conversation and Q&A via video conference. This is a lot of like insidery advertising stuff, like t touting the company's one platform initiative for selling ad inventory. All of this is like super inside baseball. What I'm hearing is that this is not a presentation that is going that is designed to take the place of an upfront. So it's not like this is going to be something that says, here's our fall schedule. Here's when things are going to going to lay out. I mean, a lot would have to happen for NBC to, to do that on Monday. And here we are. It's it's Thursday, about 1 p.m. Now, as we, we record this, NBC still hasn't done the rest of its pickup. There's no new shows. I don't think you're going to get any kind of a schedule anytime soon for any of these networks. Viacom CBS is going to have a two day uh, what they're calling Viacom CBS Upfront at Home. And these are going to be like meetings, a series of short digital presentations that spotlight the cable's company portfolios, as well as they say they're going to unveil a fall schedule. I, I don't know. Um, I'm just trying to figure out what, what this is all going to look like. I mean, CBS still has new ser series orders to make, but I, I don't know how they're going to do a fall schedule because you know, unless they're proceeding as business as usual, if production begins after the 4th of July holiday, like it normally would in a, in a, in a typical year. And obviously we are far from a typical year. <laughs> We're still recording this podcast via Google Hangout. I mean, I don't think they can put out a fall schedule, but the bigger question is what, what is fall and when is fall? You know, everything <laughs> that I'm hearing is that if, you know, it's not, no one has a has a path back to what production look, looks like. And without knowing how actors can re return to set, like, look, is Mark Harmon, who is an actor of a certain age and the star of the world's biggest show, NCIS, going to feel safe to go back to set with hundreds of people with no safety protocols or whatever those safety protocols? They've got two months to work out what those protocols are and get all the actors in, and all the different guilds all on the same page to go back to work. And that's thinking that if, if coronavirus just magically disappears, which we know it's not going to, I don't know. Mark Harmon, for the record, is 68 years old. I had to go Thank and look you. that up because I never in a million years could have guessed how yes, old and, Mark you know, Harmon was. Disney is also going to be a little bit later. They're doing um, what they're calling a virtual roadshow for ad agencies the week of May 26th. So this is, like I said, this is not Hell Week. Next week is not upfronts. I think you're going to hopefully see a lot of renewals and cancellations and possibly some new series orders by the end of May. But I don't know. Like I said, I keep saying this. I'm just going to have we should just create a sound effect for it. There are more questions than answers right now.
Tom Selleck yeah. is 75 years old, Leslie. Yeah. And, you know, wrapping things up like <laughs> like Disney Warner Media is also forgoing live and digital upfronts. They're going to have ongoing communications, you know, with people in the ad ad agencies. They were slated to have their upfront May 13th, uh, just two weeks before the launch of HBO Max. Fox, same thing. No traditional upfront presentation. They're going to hold virtual town halls with ad buyers. So I don't know unclear. I, I haven't gotten any guidance, but I, would, I was told, I heard through sources that there might be a lot of Fox News this week, but here we are, Thursday, one o'clock. I haven't seen anything yet. But that's not to say tomorrow, tomorrow could be the, my busiest day of the year, like it usually is. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, well, surely next week we will have a podcast where we, where we will discuss some of this. <laughs> yes, some of this. Number three. Our next guest is a TV icon who is among the long list of stars that legendary writer, director, and producer Gary Marshall helped to discover and launch the careers of. He is best known for playing Fonzie and is an Emmy winner for HBO's Barry. We're pleased to welcome the great Henry Winkler to the show to discuss ABC's May 12th special, The Happy Days of Gary Marshall. Getting started, Henry, thank you so much for joining us. You know what? It is my pleasure to be here with you. What an amazing way to do an interview. <laughs> yeah, seriously. You know, we're here to talk about the Gary Marshall special that's airing on ABC. And, you know, for me, I'm a lifelong Happy Days fan. That is the show that made me fall in love with TV. And in watching the special, you know, it was so fascinating to hear that it was pitched to ABC and passed over and then eventually burned off as part of Love American Style before it got a second shot three years later. Right. After they took that Love American Style episode and rewrote it recast some of it and that was the pilot and they added the Paul Lamatt character from the uh, Lucas movie starring Richard Dreyfus and there I was. And you know Gary called Happy Days his favorite TV show that he ever created. When you kind of look back on those early days, what was your casting process like for Happy Days and you know once the show became a hit and Fonzie became a pop culture sensation, what advice did Gary have for you? I learned honestly. Gary is I've said this before my don. I miss him. I would love to be able to call him. Uh, he taught me how to be an actor on the set. He taught me, along with Ron Howard, taught me a big lesson. Uh, he taught me how to be an executive producer. He was my mentor, along with Tom Miller, who unfortunately we just lost. And the third person in that triumvirate was Eddie Milkus. But Gary was a force of nature. Well, one thing that struck me watching the special is how from TV stars to movie stars, everyone talked about how Gary Marshall's sets became like a family. And and that's obviously not going to be the case on every set that you're on. What did the secret appear to be that he had? The secret was he knew what he wanted. He knew what he wanted from his people that worked with him the actors that he chose. He knew the comedy. You know, he was famous for saying, and I, and I, I believe I say this in the, in, the, in the special, in the documentary, he always said, a lot of people make, you know, important television. I make recess. He knew his lane. And as he got comfortable with his lane, he knew his lane, he then slowly but surely expanded it into all of the incredible creations. But his warmth, 
you you went to him as a psychologist you went to him as a dad you went to him as a creator you went to him as a problem solver you know it was an amazing thing now i have to ask uh just about everyone in the special attempts a gary marshall impression and i would say yours is probably the best of that group what is I'm the so secret? excited <laughs> <laughs> what is the secret to a good Gary Marshall impression. You, you picture him eating spaghetti with only ketchup <laughs> and getting it mostly on himself. And then you start your impression from that. So that's your visual. <laughs> you're, you're eating with him and he's eating. And uh, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't like fancy. <laughs> he, he, you know, when he... <laughs> When he drove from his home in the valley to Paramount Lot, he would drive around the block because he never made a left turn. So if the if the entrance to the the, the Paramount Lot was on his left, he was going to make a, a right turn and come around and get in there another way. You know, what, Gary's track record is just legendary for lack of a better word. I think it's, you know, hard to describe outside of that, but Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Mork and Mindy, there's so many iconic shows and, and movies and that he was part of, and he had such an incredible knack for discovering talent, including yourself. Could you talk a little bit about what he did for you in your career? On the one hand, uh, he wanted someone who was Italian and tall and he was open enough. Uh, his his uh, secret sauce was that he saw what was in front of him and realized how that could help the process. So instead of tall and Italian, he got short and Jewish. <laughs> and in my mind, I became tall and Italian. Right. He was very strict in that loosey-goosey way. He would not tolerate bad behavior, you know, except, of course, uh, Laverne and Shirley, uh, you know, it, Laverne was his sister. So they were on the soundstage right next door to Happy Days. But somehow in the in the in the heat of of summer, they got all the air conditioning. So <laughs> in that way, he couldn't be strict. We were sweltering in leather. And they were uh, luxuriating in cool air. When, when you look back at, at those times filming and, and having him, him on set, is there a specific memory that kind of comes to mind that really encapsulates, you know, what your, your relationship was like with him? Maybe some anecdote that, that you, you remember there was something that stands well, out? Well, there were two things. One, when he, I was going to make my first personal appearance and I was going to Little Rock, Arkansas. I was being brought in by the newspaper. Uh, at that time, there were newspapers. <laughs> and I was going to make an appearance at the mall sponsored by the newspaper. And we were uh, finishing a show Friday night. It was late. I had to catch a plane. He was introducing the guest cast. And I went up and I whispered, Gary, uh, well, I, we got to speed it up because I have to go. I have a plane. He nodded. He put down the microphone when he was done. He came over to me and grabbed me by the shirt, held me up against the wall. And he said, 
They have every right to be introduced like you. Don't interrupt them again. I said, Gary, I am sitting over here. I'm not going to say a word. You call me when you need me. And <laughs> I never, I never did that again. And in that way, th- those little lessons, I learned to be an executive producer. So have you had to do that to, uh, to cast members at any point on any show that you've been a producer on? Do you know what? The, here's the truth. When there was an actor who would not come out of their trailer, I literally walked up to the trailer and I said, okay, now we're going to just count how many letters we get a week each. (laughs) And if you don't equal mine, just get the (laughs) hell out of that trailer. (laughs) Because there is no such thing as being a star, there's being a professional. So unlock the door or I'm going to rip it right off the trailer. <laughs> I honestly, I'm not kidding. This is mind blowing for, you know, just to hear from, to hear this kind of stuff from you, these stories from you, it's like you have the reputation and, and I say this obviously as a super fan, but you know, every time that I post that, that, that we've had an exchange and, and getting to know you has been one of the true gifts in my career. Yeah, if you and know what, Leslie, for me everyone says, thank you, Henry. But everyone says the exact same thing about you, that everyone in this town has a story about how incredibly nice and amazing and sweet and kind you are. So to hear you tell a story like that is incredible. I have to say that is that kind of um, uh, personal disrespect or professional disrespect drives me from zero to a hundred in 10 seconds. I uh, look, uh, Gary, who knew there was a gorilla in Gary? You know, I, I, and I'm telling you, I almost, I've never saw it again. I never saw that again, but when you need it, you know, you have to step up to the plate Mm -hmm. because when I was doing uh, the first show I ever produced was MacGyver uh, with John Rich, the late John Rich. And you have a job to do. You have a, a show to deliver. You have a cast to protect. And someone is, oh, you're not, you can't be an asshole. You got to be right there and deliver on the money or go home and sell shoes. Does anyone today remind you of Gary in terms of the positivity of his worldview and the perspective that that brought to his shows? You know what? He really um, was one of a kind. Uh, You cannot compare him. Now, he's a brilliant, he was a brilliant man. And I use the word brilliant advisedly. But then I got to work with Adam Sandler. Also, a dear, wonderful man in charge of every detail of every project he does and is very strong about it in that we're on the set with uh, Adam Sandler. We're doing Waterboy. He is a little ADD, I think, and he <laughs> has to keep uh, his hands happy. So he sends his, um, his minions, who he met at NYU, this is Adam, out, and they bring back canvases and spray paint of every color, multiple cans. And now, you're, if you're standing around, the crew, the cast, Adam, everybody gets a color, and everybody 
And then the next person, now a kid walks up. He's 11 years old. He goes, Adam Sandler, I love you. He said, here, take a can. Now the kid is in the middle of the family. Everybody, that was, is the way Adam is. Mitch Hurwitz, brilliant. Uh, Michael Shore, uh, Parks and Rec, brilliant. Mm -hmm. Bill Hader and Alec Berg, together. (laughs) I'm telling you, it's in the quietest way. There is no drama on Bill and Alec's set, except for the drama they've written. So I'm unbelievably lucky in that way. (laughs) You know, the thing that struck me about the Gary Marshall special is, you know, the, the backstory that this is a show that succeeded because it came out at a time when the country, when there was so much upheaval in the country and this was kind of nostalgia and, and go back in time to a simpler, more pure time. You know, obviously looking at the state of the world today, do you think a Happy Days, a show like Happy Days would work today? Okay, I don't know if I'm going to embarrass myself or not, Leslie, but here it is. I swear to you, I called my manager, Cliff, and I said, Cliff, let's call CBS because I honestly believe there are so many children at home Children at three didn't even know what I was saying, but they understood the essence of the Fonz. They should put it on and people will come like a magnet. They didn't go for it. (laughs) I I would watch instantly, but... Last week, Leslie, I I asked to make that call. Who who would be your pick to play the Fonz today? You know, oh, that's a good... uh, Ryan Gosling. <laughs> Would watch. <laughs> Ryan Gosling has that innate because you know when you go e, you're talking volumes. You're not just making a sound. Like hey, you're beautiful. Hey, I'm hungry. Hey, do not mess with me. So you're saying. So much, and all the you know, a lot of actors just go, Hey, <laughs> I, I no, that, that was perfect, and I am crying now because I'm this is making me so incredibly happy. You know, wrapping things up, I think it's wonderful to see you, and you have the uh, this beautiful and this, this very lovely quarantine beard. But how are you doing? What are you watching? I mean, you watch a ton of content to begin with, so now that you're home, I really so much, do. I love television, I love entertainment, I love watching wonderful actors, I write fan letters. Two things one, today, as we're recording this all together, is my anniversary, my 42nd anniversary. Happy anniversary, oh, happy anniversary to you and yours. I cut flowers out of our garden. Oh, beautiful. Tasty. This one, I, I wish you could smell it. It's <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, two, I got to make a commencement speech. iHeartRadio uh, called up and along with a lot of other people said you from two to 10 minutes. And so I think I made an eight minute commencement speech that will go out the 15th of May. Because I was going to give um, my alma mater, Emerson College, I was going to speak at their commencement, and that was blown. Uh, so uh, that that is exciting. 
Well, that is definitely something to look forward to. I've forgotten your question. Oh, the question was, you know, we we end every interview the same way. What shows are you watching? I mean, you know, like we said, you watch a ton of content before before a quarantine situation. All right. So I really uh, enjoy uh, John Oliver, The Watchmen. I wasn't able to watch it all at one time. Regina Hall is king or, you know, Money Heist which is a Spanish uh, show that is unbelievable. It's a procedural that makes our, a lot of our cop procedurals look like a Mars bar. <laughs> um, uh, Fauda, the third season of Fauda. Dave, which is on Hulu, this extraordinarily schleppy guy who is so verbal and adroit and cool. I can't believe it. But if you pass him on the street, you would probably offer him money. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Henry. We appreciate it so much. Thank you, Henry. (laughs) The Happy Days of Gary Marshall airs Tuesday, May 12th at 8 p.m. on ABC. Up next is our showrunner spotlight. Number four. Joining us this week is Liz Feldman. Liz got her start as a stand-up comedian in the LGBTQ community, where we first crossed paths, funny story, after contributing to AfterEllen.com. Before she went on to write and perform on Nickelodeon's All That, she parlayed that into writing for comedies, including Two Broke Girls and The Ellen DeGeneres Show. After that, she created NBC's One Big Happy before earning TCA and WGA award nominations for Netflix comedic thriller Dead to Me. Welcome to the podcast, Liz. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. How, how are you doing? Let's, let's start with that. How are you doing? What a loaded question during these times. I mean, is anybody answering that question just like, well, I'm great. It, I would imagine it's, it's very odd to promote a show in the thick of all of this. Yeah, it does. It feels a little weird. And, you know, listen, I'm probably just like everybody else who's listening, like, can't wait for this to be over. You know, there's been some kind of lovely things that happen, you know, by by spending so much time at home uh, with my lovely wife and, you know, makes you grateful for the things that, you know, you have and that you miss. And of course, like, you know, I, I, I really miss my family and my friends and just, you know, people in general, you know, and in terms of promoting the show, like, yeah, I had mixed feelings about it because I it's it's a weird thing, you know, to go out there and pretend like everything's okay. And I sort of decided like I probably don't have to do that. Like I just, you know, I'm I'm living through this just like everybody else. And, you know, we happen to be able to finish the second season, which I'm really whew, happy about. And we finished by the skin of our teeth. So um, you know, I'm just happy to be able to provide hopefully some escape and some entertainment for people because I know how hungry I am for it. I know that I'm just like devouring television right now. And, you know, hopefully, you know, this will just give people, you know, five hours of a, of a break from all this madness. Yeah, well said. <laughs> well, the, the show itself is a kind of a high wire act because it's half a relationship, friendship, comedy, and then it's half a cliffhanger, heavy thriller with a murder mystery at its center. When you were initially going around with this idea, how hard was it to get people to understand the different facets of what this show is? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. There were certainly a lot of questions about the tone when I was pitching this uh, about town, you know, and I I had it pretty well in my head. Like, I always um, say that I see this show like I see life, you know, that like any given day, 
something hilarious can happen, you know, like your cat can do something stupid and you're laughing your ass off or, you know, like your friend tells you this ridiculous story and you're just enjoying life. And then you get a phone call and something horribly tragic just happened. Uh, Of course, right now, all my references are phone calls and my cat because that's all uh, life is right now. (laughs) But you know what I mean? Like, you know, just life is crazy. Like, you know, I'm sorry, we're in a global pandemic and now there are murder hornets. So you you can't make that shit up. I mean, that's about as ridiculous and twisty and turny as you could you can get. And so that's sort of how I would explain it. You know, when I would go into pitch, I would say I just sort of see the show like like how I see life. It's just not one thing. You know, like we don't experience life as a comedy or as a drama or as a thriller. It's probably all of that. And so I think there was like some understanding of that. But then I think when I wrote the pilot. You know, and and people could sort of finally read what I was going for. They got it. Yeah. I mean, when you initially pitched it, how much did you pitch? Like, did you already know what season two was going to be? And you mentioned when, you know, when you you shot this around town, where else were you also kind of poking around? And where else, (laughs) like, who else was interested in buying this? I mean, look, like you go anywhere that's interested and you just hope that, you know, somebody buys it. But um, well, in terms of, you know, how much I pitched, you know, when you're going into places like Netflix or HBO or Hulu, um, all places that, you know, we went to for for this pitch, they want to hear as much as you are possibly able to give them. And so I pitched the entire pilot pretty much as you ended up seeing it. And I pitched pretty much every episode of season one, although what you ended up seeing was far more developed and interesting and nuanced than, you know, my sort of first blush pitch because I get to then hire amazing writers who make it, you know, better than I could do it by myself. Uh, And I even did pitch an arc for season two in that initial pitch. Now, it's completely different because we ended up uh, ending season one on a different note than I had originally planned. So, you know, things always end up shifting because, you know, one massive uh, change, like, you know, the very last moment of, of season one can can set you off on an entirely new path. But yeah, we, we pitched it to all pretty much all the streaming channels and your cable and, you know, uh, premium places. And uh, we got a lot of interest, which was really incredible. And ultimately, I, I always sort of saw it on Netflix. And maybe because I'm such a huge fan of their shows and I end up watching pretty much all of it. And I just thought it would be really fun and challenging after working in network for so long to have to think of, you know, these fun cliffhangers and to create this propulsive narrative that, you know, keeps you watching. Now, when it comes to those cliffhangers, where do they come in the process? Because if every season is going to be 10 half hour episodes resolving in a cliffhanger, do you have to have all 10 cliffhangers basically charted out and then build around them? Or do they shift and move around as you go? Well, You know, we try to develop story as organically as possible so that we're not just working towards some cliffhanger just for the cliffhanger's sake. You know, we always try to, you know, create that moment out of what is actually happening for those characters, what they want, you know, uh, what is driving them in that moment so that when there are, you know, these kind of crazy right turns um, and zigs and zags, it, it does still feel true to the characters. Uh, That's always like my litmus test there. But, you know, there are certain cliffhangers, especially uh, in season two, where I knew that I wanted to find a place 
for those moments. And then, you know, it's up to us in the writer's room to develop the story in a way that justifies, you know, that cliffhanger. And sometimes if a cliffhanger is just, you know, just for the sheer reason that you need something at the end of a uh, of an episode to keep you watching like I would always try to go back and you know make sure it's really earned yeah you know as, as you kind of plot the future of the show will there be some kind of a murder or massive secret to cover up every season <laughs> is that kind of how it's designed I mean and to do that you know if that is something that you're planning to do that at a place like Netflix which has a penchant for not necessarily letting shows run their course you know obviously they have you know the three three seasons is the new six kind of hit track record there right does that concern you you know it doesn't concern me because I want this show to hopefully be as, you know, good as it can possibly be for however long it's on. And, you know, obviously you want to have some control over your destiny. You want to know, okay, well, this is my last season, so I'm going to end this story, you know, and I'm going to close out these characters in a satisfying way. So, you know, it remains to be seen how many seasons we're going to have. I don't see this show as a six or seven season show for that very reason that you're right. talking about, Leslie. Like, I don't, you know, I don't want to just have to pull a murder, you know, out of uh, my pocket, you know, every two seconds just to just to justify the existence of the show. So, you know, another thing that we always talk about in the room is, you know, subverting expectations. So, you know, because the show is called Dead to Me, because of how the first season started and ended, like, it, you know, one would think like, oh, well, there's going to be a murder every season. And, you know, maybe that's just not true. You know, maybe there are other ways to uh, tell this story and express our themes, you know, without hitting it so uh, hard on the head. Well, when you were going around doing the pitches, was there anybody who said, OK, this is kind of the starting point. But is there a point at which the show is just going to become a friendship show? You know, wh whether you're going to strip out some of the genre elements at any point and just let it be about these two women and their friendship. You know, nobody I pitched it to asked me that. Nobody nobody said, you know, if we're going to do this show at some point, you have to peel back multiple layers of what makes the show the show and, you know, make it something else. You know, if I, if I wanted to just make a buddy comedy, you know, about two ladies, like I could have done that and they could have picked that show up, but this is just a different show. And, you know, I think it, it does sort of straddle obviously so many genres. It is, I like to call it, it's genre nonconforming. Um, but at the core, it really is about that friendship. It is about that relationship. So as long as we are riding through, you know, and, and, and experiencing all these different sort of feelings, like it's a thriller, like it's a, you know, it's a mystery. As long as at the core there is that friendship, you know, to me, that is still the most important part of the show, but it will never just be, you know, Jen and Judy sitting on a couch, you know, chit-chatting and drinking wine for 30 minutes. Did it change in the second half because you knew that audiences were going to expect certain things? Did the fact that audiences were going to be looking for the twists and looking for the cliffhangers cause you to revise the rhythms or what constituted a surprise? Well, look, you know, when we were doing the first season, we had no idea what the audience was going to think or feel, you know, or or like or dislike. We just sort of went for what to us was a really fun and, and surprising and delightful version of this show. And that's just sort of what we tried to keep doing for season two. You know, obviously, we, we pay attention to, you know, our fans and we're it's amazing, by the way, to even have fans like it feels weird to say, like, we pay attention to the like, it's like what people like the show. That's a really incredible thing. And um 
you know, but like I, I try not to take too many cues from outside, you know, our own sort of creative team because I just want to stay true to the vision that I have for the show, which is that it's going to be, you know, all of these things at once. And, you know, it's really fun, by the way, as a writer in a room with other fun, smart people to come up with these twists and turns and to come up with like, what is, what is something that like feels exciting, but again, grounded in what we actually think these characters would do. Um, so it, it, it is like a fun challenge. And to me, I would be a lot less excited to walk into that writer's room if we were just sort of telling, you know, really basic friendship stories. One thing that I do want to discuss, we want to talk about uh, about season two, but do it in, in a way with, that's broad strokes, because obviously this interview comes out the day that, that your episodes post. So yes, w- without giving away too much, and I'll let you be the, the barometer of that, um, <laughs> how did you kind of, expl- you know, set out to, to, you know, like there's some big twists and turns and there are some that some very popular TV tropes. And I uh-huh. don't say that with any negative connotation here. Yeah, sure. But like, th- there are a few tropes that you explore this season. You know, when you guys set out to have that d- larger discussion, did that factor in like the negative reaction that some people have? Like, oh, this trope, or like, did you want right. to kind of intentionally lean into that? Yeah, I mean, look, I I watch just as much television, and and you know have been watching TV for, you know, decades. So I'm deeply familiar with the tropes. Uh, and of course, yeah, we, we definitely very purposefully and, and very mindfully lean into certain tropes this season that you'll see. At a certain point, when you lean hard into, into a number of tropes all in one season, it almost feels like it becomes camp, like you're doing it as like a tongue in cheek way of exploring that in a campy kind of way. And, to me, it, it kind of works for the show because, as you said, it, 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 it really is genre nonconforming. Obviously, look, we are super aware that we are relying on certain tropes that we have all seen before. And we've seen them maybe more successfully than uh, not in certain shows and movies. But, you know, for me, it was worth leaning into that trope for how it pays off, you know, and it was a challenge, you know, to take this very sort of cliche thing and have it make a lot of sense and have and ground it into the the reality and the world of the show that we built. And I do think that because like you were saying Leslie because this show, you know, exists, you know, through time and space and genre, we can do things like that as long as we're aware. And yeah, there is certainly a tongue in cheek, you know, element about some of the tropes that we're using and we often call out, you know, exactly what we're doing. The two main characters, Jen and Judy, are are also aware that the things that are happening to and around them are a little bit nuts. So I think as long as like the characters are aware of it and the writers are aware of it, it's okay. And I understand that some people will take umbrage with it and have their feelings about it. And everybody's allowed to have their feelings about it. But for me, um, my litmus test is, it does it surprise and delight me? And these particular tropes do. Now, when you're putting together the writer's room for a show with this many disparate genre elements, are there specific people that you're hiring because you know they're good with mechanics of certain thriller things, whereas other people are maybe more punchline oriented? Or have you actually been able to put together a room of kind of unicorns that are able to do both things? I'm picturing a room of unicorns now, Dan. Thanks. Oh, my God. Now I'm going to be disappointed if I I don't enter a room full of unicorns. Um, (laughs) 
Well, but speaking of unicorns, I mean, I certainly have some unicorns uh, in the room, both in season one and season two. And but you, know, yeah, it's it's a good question. And and the truth is, like, I did hire you know a couple of writers for season two who were more drama, mystery, crime oriented, because I'm not going to pretend like I've been doing Law and Order for 10 years, you know, I, I come from, you know, very broad comedy world and I'm always interested in learning from the people I'm working with. I never want to, you know, feel like I'm the smartest person in the room. I want to feel like everybody I'm working with is smarter than me. So I hired some incredibly smart, you know, writers uh, from one hour dramas and also some incredibly hilarious uh, comedy writers to help sort of balance out all that genre stuff. And uh, what's incredible is that what I think a lot of my writers discovered is that they might be a drama writer, but they can write comedy and they might be a comedy writer, but they can write crazy mystery. So, um, you know, I think it's hopefully kind of a fun show to work on because you get to do all that stuff. Who in the writer's room would be particularly good at actually covering up a murder? <laughs> you know what's really creepy? Everybody was good at, at covering up a murder. Um, you know, it's like I think we've all sort of seen a, enough portrayals of murder cover-ups that we have a, weirdly. We just have like a litany of ideas, you know, and, and uh, ways out. But, you know, instead of just trying to think of, like, fun ways to cover up a dead body, we actually sat and thought to ourselves, what would I do? How would I feel? And, like, what could, as, like, a petite 40-something-year-old woman, like, what could I actually physically do? I would be all about Weekend and Bernie's. My, my cover-up would just be work Weekend and Bernie's. <laughs> Throw a pair of sunglasses on, drag the body around all over the place. That's as creative as I'm going to get. Listen, you know, maybe season three. <laughs> well, you, know, you, you, you mentioned season three. And obviously, you know, we talk a lot about the, the world that we're living in now. First of all, the show hasn't officially been renewed. But as someone who has yeah. seen the whole thing, it kind of you would hope that there would be a third season after this. But, you know, in this landscape, you guys are still relatively grounded in reality. Um, the show is it's not a superhero show, obviously. So right. as as a writer, are you kind of starting to think about how you might or might not write in COVID and this current global pandemic into the storylines? Like how would Jen and Judy respond to being confined in a house? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's that's a great question. And, you know, it's obviously something I'm thinking a lot about, you know, and I'm ruminating on. And thank you, by the way, for 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 saying that you, th you think we were going to get a third season. I, I hope so. I'm cautiously optimistic, but I also have been working in this business too long to um, be purely hopeful. But, you know, in terms of the realities for Jen and Judy in season three, you know, one thing I will say is that I do tend to try to tell evergreen stories in terms of not necessarily nailing my characters in this world down to a time and a place, right. you know, so that the show can continue to exist and be new for people and also perhaps not necessarily remind us of a specific, you know, moment in our history that I'm guessing once we're out of, we don't want to be reminded of. So, you know, there maybe are some interesting ways to handle the sort of sort of general like emotional vibe of being in quarantine, maybe, maybe without sort of hitting it on its head, you know, and telling a literal story about, you know, COVID and uh, right. this weird time we're living in. Right. And, and on screen is just one, one facet. Then there's the behind the scenes. Like how are, are you thinking about reshaping scenes or maybe avoiding writing specific scenes, given that when, when production does resume, whenever that is, 
that there will have to be a new set of guidelines. Like, are you thinking about not doing crowd scenes? How do you do love scenes? You know, I mean, right. especially, you know, when you have two sexually active women at the, the center of the show, there's going, there are going to be sex scenes in the show. Well, now I know what you want to see in season three. <laughs> well, what I want to see more of in season three, I'm not allowed to talk about because it's I know, embargo. I know. And I, I will say that, that 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 actress and that character, I would watch read the phone book. I really appreciate that and 100% agree. So, yeah, I mean, look, obviously there is so much to be figured out, you know, for how any of us get back into production. And I'm grateful for the timing that we're in right now with the potential season three because we haven't even started a writer's room, you know, and we haven't even gotten a pickup. And so, you know, once that happens, hopefully if that happens, for those of you at home, I have my fingers crossed, literally, and... I'm sort of sort of selfishly hoping that other shows and movies will have to be back in production before I do so that greater, you know, smarter people than me. And I know that Gloria uh, Calderon Kellett feels the same way because we've chatted about it on Twitter. Like, and she just said as much hoping- on this show, too. Yes, exactly. Yes. The, the, um, I think we're all hoping that other people find a way through this because, you know, look, I don't have any experience, you know, doing production in a pandemic. And for me, the most important thing is making sure that my cast and my crew are safe. And like, how do you ensure safety? I don't even think we know the answer to that yet. So obviously where there's a will, there's a way. And I think so many people have this question to answer. I'm just sort of hoping um, my answer gets to be informed by the brilliant uh, (laughs) answers of the people before me. Oh, no, no, no. We need we need another couple more weeks in the writer's room just to make sure everything's okay, and then let everyone else. (laughs) I mean, kind of, I, I, you know, (laughs) I mean, obviously, if we were thrust back into production immediately, I would be, you know, trying to figure out as soon as possible how to do that. But like, you know, I, I just, I certainly hope that, I mean, obviously, it would be very helpful to have as much testing as possible so that maybe there could be daily testing. And it would be great to have, you know, sanitation crews on every set. And some other magical thing that somebody else will come up with that will be able to get us all back into production. Yeah, you know, and as people are listening to this, probably we usually post Friday early so people listen to it on their commute, which no one has anymore. But for those who haven't started watching season two yet, can you give any kind of a teaser to our listeners? What I can tell you is that it is the same show you watched last season, only it's darker you know, things are hopefully deeper, maybe even a little funnier and certainly weirder. What did you learn about the two actresses at the center of the show that you wanted to steer into in the second season in terms of their strengths? What what did you say? Oh, my God, Christina does this spectacularly. We have to let her do it three more times in season two, that kind of thing. Well, first of all, I was already such a big fan of both Christina Applegate and Linda Cardellini coming in to the show. And they both absolutely floored me in terms of their ability to weave so seamlessly between comedy and drama. And the emotional work that Christina Applegate does on this show is incredibly mind-blowing for any actress, but especially someone with the, you know, 
comedy background that we, you know, we know her from. And so much to her dismay, when I realized how incredibly good she was at the more vulnerable, raw, emotional stuff, you know, we certainly didn't shy away from that in season two. And I think conversely with Linda, you know, who's somebody that we we knew more in a dramatic capacity, you know, her comic ability just absolutely floored me. And so, you know, we certainly leaned into that for season two. And then in terms of like the two of them together, you know, you can only hope to get chemistry like that between two actors on a show. You know, they had never even met before uh, we cast them. And, you know, pretty much from moment one, just their ability to feel like real friends that really organic back and forth was was such a gift because so often almost at least once per scene we would just let them improvise and just like keep going as those characters and see what you know they come up with and always there would be some sort of gold between the two of them you know because they know their characters so well by this point that you know their ability to improvise and heighten the scene in the moment is is like truly incredible one other thing I want to, before we wrap up a little bit, you know, you and I go way back. Um, I think we kind of yes. both found our way into this industry through a website that sadly is no longer, but it's called AfterEllen.com. It was an LGBT-focused right. blog about entertainment. Um, can you talk a little bit about the way that, like, you have a very had a very unique path. You went from doing stand-up comedy and and vlogs for After Ellen, and then parlayed that to working directly with Ellen DeGeneres. And of course, the website was not affiliated with her. But I right. mean, that was kind of an incredible career path. I mean, do you ever kind of sit back and, and think about your, your roots and coming up through the <laughs> LGBT community and through an entertainment blog like that and then where you are now? Yes. Thank you for putting it into perspective. Um, yeah. I mean, I do think about it kind of right now, especially because I'm being asked, you know, about my career trajectory and stuff, which is always like a little weird and self-conscious to talk about. But, you know, I started very young in this business as a stand-up in my teens and um, always with the aspiration to work for Ellen because I was like, you know, I was a gay stand-up, you know, and, yeah. and if, if people were going to compare me to somebody, she was about the only person there was to compare me to. But I just was such a a huge fan of hers. Uh, and this is before she came out, you know, and then when she came out, obviously, you know, she changed my life, you know, she changed so many of our lives. And she made me feel like it was okay to be gay. And I kind of wanted to give that gift back to our community, which is why I, I started doing this talk show called This Just Out, uh, which still exists on YouTube, but it used to be on After Ellen. And really, the whole point of that show was to interview uh, famous lesbians and people of interest, you know, to the LGBT community and just put out as positive a message uh, to young people and young women that it is not just okay to be gay, but it's pretty awesome. And, you know, it was a real joy to do that show, but it was always a little bit of a side gig. Like it was not, you know, it's not something that I ever made money doing. And I was always pursuing a career as a writer, um, you know, parallel to that. And so, you know, obviously getting to work for Ellen was a dream and I learned so much from working with her. But one of the things that I learned was like, I was really excited to tell my own stories. So when I left her show, I started writing pilots and, you know, I was able to join writer's rooms and, you know, learn my way through multi-camera television, uh, which I spent almost a decade doing. And um, coming off of that, you know, I just was so I was just so like hungry to tell a story that was more than 21 and a half minutes and that could 
you know, contain more than just a three jokes per page, beginning, middle, end, you know, crazy act break. You know, I just was like longing to tell a more nuanced, textured story. And, you know, Dead to Me has given me that opportunity. And it's given us the opportunity here. Christina Applegate say fuckity fuck fuck in like 18 different times a season, which I particularly enjoy. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) And just as our standard last question that we like to ask everybody, what are you watching and enjoying these days in these particularly strange days? (laughs) Yes. Well, it is a good question. I mean, I'm watching so much that we don't have time for me to go down uh, my list. But I will say we are savoring Homeland. I am parsing out this final season like it is, you know, a fine wine. And it is. I mean, it's a show I love. My wife and I have been watching it pretty much the entire duration of our relationship. And Claire Danes and her brilliant performance and her quivering chin never gets old. And it's just great storytelling. And I really respect their ability to like, you know, kind of reinvent this insane plot every uh, every season. So I'm watching that. I have gone on record to say that I became slightly obsessed with the Too Hot to Handle, which is a <laughs> uh, incredibly uh, trashy <laughs> but super fun reality show on Netflix. But I'll tell you what's so weird is that when the quarantine first started, I went down this really dark path of watching only true crime documentaries because it's like as if I only wanted to be immersed in in a world that was worse than the one, you know, we were currently living in. So there was a lot of like the devil next door and like the Ted Bundy tapes and uh, yeah, you know, just all of these like great like confessions of a killer. And then, you know, I sort of got that out of my system and then, you know, went right to too hot to handle. <laughs> as you do. Well, Liz, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time out. Thank you guys so much. Great to see you again, Leslie. And take care. Always a pleasure. The second season of Dead to Me premieres Friday, May 8th on Netflix. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Dan, lots of stuff to choose from this week. Launching this this week are Solar Opposites on Hulu. And this is a reminder to check out our showrunner spotlight interview with creators Justin Roiland and Mike McMahon from last week. Over at Netflix, season two of Dead to Me and The Eddie launches. Mark Ruffalo vehicle, I know this much is true, also bows on HBO. Lots of stuff, all high end. There is definitely a lot of stuff uh, airing in the next week. I, I would like to begin by saying that the... Uh, Gary Marshall special that Henry Winkler was joining us to talk about is a really good special. Uh, it's so much fun, Dan. I loved it so and much. It's, and it's got such an impressive assortment of people from his past. And I think that it's I think it's actually it's a very good, very Gary Marshall appropriate tribute because it's got a lot of very fun moments. Uh, I think that, for example, Uh, Julia Roberts is hilarious in it and Hathaway is very, very funny. And it really is. It's very sentimental in a lot of the ways that a Gary Marshall movie or TV show would have been like. Chances are good that if you watch it and if you care, you will get teary at the end. And if there's anything more appropriate to Gary Marshall than a kind of manipulative special that will make you laugh and cry. I don't know what it is. So that that would be one thing I would say people, you know, should absolutely check out if they care. 
So, yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff this week and it's of kind of once again, somewhat mixed quality. I, I know this much is true. Absolutely. Mark Ruffalo is going to be nominated for an Emmy for it. He's probably going to win. I don't know necessarily how you can beat a double Mark Ruffalo performance in an HBO limited series. It's also so very bleak and miserable for six solid hours, including a finale that's 78 minutes. That's a lot of misery. And I feel I can't do that. And and I don't know that I can recommend necessarily that anyone needs to unless you want to see some very, very good acting. And there's unquestionably good acting. I feel as if the Wally Lamb book that it's based on had a little bit more breathing room or a little bit more levity mixed in amidst what is still very much a, a tragedy. So brace yourself for it. In my now see this newsletter this week, I suggested that maybe to set yourself up, you want to watch eight episodes of Solar Opposites first. Uh, Solar Opposites is very, very Rick and Morty-esque. Uh, I would say it's a little hit and miss for the first four or five episodes, but I thought that episodes six and seven in particular are really, really good. They're really funny. They're they're decently outside of the box thinking, and they kind of suggest what the show could be if it decides to go forward. So I, I dug the end of the season and the first half of the season was was amiable and funny and silly and and stuff. Lots of swearing, uh, lots of violence, a little bit of cartoon sex. So definitely this is not one to watch with the with the children around, but it is it is still amusing in its own way. Uh, you just heard our interview with Liz Feldman. I, I think the second season of Dead to Me is a lot like the first season. And so for me, that means I was watching for Linda Cardellini and for Christina Applegate, who I think are both giving wonderful performances. I, I don't quite understand why Christina Applegate was kind of coronated as the designated person to get award nominations and recognition for it, because I think Linda Cardellini is every bit her equal. Uh, but yeah, so if if you liked the first season and if you dug the cliffhanger -y nature of the first season, it continues. If you watched the first season just for these two great actresses, that's a thing. Uh, and then the Eddie on Netflix, there have been a lot of fairly mixed, in some cases, negative reviews for this one. Uh, and to me, it's a lot of jazz music. It's not very involving on a narrative level, but it's a very nicely shot travelogue of Paris. It, it, it does a wonderful job of capturing Paris in a way that is not picture postcard Paris. And I think there's some validity to this. I've only watched a couple episodes of it. And on a plot driven level, I, I don't know necessarily why I would feel like I wanted to watch more. But it's got a lot of very good actors in it, uh, including Audrey Holland, Joanna Kulig from Cold War, Amanda Stenberg, who I think is fantastic. Uh, so, uh, you know, there are reasons to watch it. The the story that's being told over its duration are not among those reasons. So, you know, be prepared to have a lot of kind of meandering, jazzy digressions and probably being annoyed by that. But it's you know, we're all kind of trapped at home and there's something to be said for spending a few hours in Paris. So don't we all wish we could be there? Yes, indeed. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter, and you can find that on THR.com.
Well, Dan, this feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we will be joined by Snowpiercer showrunner Graham Mason. Until then, be sure to subscribe on your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. We're always available on Twitter to hear all of your questions, comments, and concerns. But if you have questions for future mailbag segments, email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the number five, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. 